0: Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Amen. And our students and children can be dismissed at this point in time, so if you're planning on going there, now's your cue. Once again, good morning, and uh, isn't it a great day to be a child of God? For those of you who have that confidence, you turn on the news, you see crazy things going on, and know it's not just what started yesterday, but if you watch uh, just the world news and droughts and extreme weather and wars and rumors of wars, these are just great days to cuddle up next to Jesus, to know that your sins are forgiven, to know that if everything else goes to hell in a handbasket at least you know this, that you are right with God. That's what it means to be a child of God. Um, By the way, for those of you who want me to preach on what's going on in Israel right now, um, I'm just going to give you an assignment. Um, Go and read Matthew 24. And don't go to read it to just try to figure out what just happened. Go to read that devotionally To understand what the Lord asks of us, those of us who are living in the last days. And so Matthew 24 is your assignment. Well, we happen to have a couple of families in our church body right now who are in need. And one of the things that we like to do as a church for families in need, couples in need, is to provide meals for them. And so last Monday, I got home a little bit early in order to cook one of my specialties, beef and broccoli over rice. And I cooked enough for two families, ours and theirs. My wife tasted it and called it, quote, best ever. (laughs) Just saying. I moved my enormous cast iron skillet off the stove underneath the cabinet, on a hot pad, where I could package it for delivery. Um, I opened the cabinet to reach for a dish, and I didn't feel it, I didn't see it, I just heard it, and actually felt it. The cabinet was booby-trapped, not intentionally, But there was a booby trap in that cabinet, and the first I knew of it was an explosion of shattering glass. You see, there was a tall, thin flower vase that was next to the plates that the plate, as I pulled it out, tipped it out, didn't even see it, hit squarely on the edge of the frying pan, the cast iron skillet. And set off a nuclear reaction. Explosive, explosive. And I looked down to see that the shattered vase was mostly on the countertop, around the skillet. And unfortunately, some, some. Some of the larger pieces were in, ish, the best ever beef and broccoli. Meaning I could probably pick them out with my glasses on, you know. I could probably get them out. And I stood there, sir. this is real. And and you got to know me and what I'm willing to risk. I stood there thinking like, Nobody else knows that this just happened. (laughs) And nobody needs to know about this. I was tempted to deny, minimize, and rationalize. I'll inspect it closely, I'll test it on myself. I'll only serve them from the farthest portions of the giant cast iron skillet. And this side will be mine. They can be safe. Do you know what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 5, 9? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. But, But this wasn't leaven. It's glass. But it was still going through my mind. Can you imagine chewing and swallowing a morsel? only to discover that it's laced with splintered shards of glass, and the chef knew it. I mean, that might actually be called aggravated assault. In the same way, every single one of us here this morning has at least some leaven. Some splintered glass. Some sin and sinfulness that shows up in our thoughts, attitudes, relationships, our business ethics, our choices. It's just a little for some of us who have been working really hard to follow Jesus for many years. No major blind spots. It's just a little. A little lust, a little greed, a little pride, a little gluttony, a little lack of gratitude, a little bit lack of love, a little bit of self-centeredness in self-obsession, just a little lack of genuine goodness that we call sin. But it's just a little, and it's not as bad as it used to be, plus I'm forgiven, And that's such good news, and everybody does it sometimes. No big deal, right? Let's see what the Apostle John would have to say about this. So if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 John chapter 3, and this morning we're in verses 4 through 10. As you turn there, let me just remind you, this is written by John, son of Zebedee. He is now a very old man, and he is writing to Christians and churches under his spiritual care, his concern is that they would genuinely flourish in their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in so doing, they would have fullness of joy and life and fellowship with the Father and the Son and with other believers. But in order to do so, they just have to walk in the light as he is in the light. Last week's text, last week's bottom line, abiding in Jesus walking with jesus loving jesus following jesus will result in great confidence at his appearing every generation every believer has to prepare for the return of christ whether it's universal which will be one day or one by one we will go on in death to meet him face to face we must prepare ourselves for the return of jesus and in order to do so we have to walk in the light Have fellowship with him. Practice righteousness from faith, not self-righteousness. But practice the righteousness that God has given us and purify yourself. Participate in what God is doing in you. Stop working against it in enticing your own desires. Undermining your own addictions. Work with him for he is in you. You are a new creation, so abide in him. In last week's text, we saw two times this phrase. When he appears, last week's text is looking forward to the return of Christ. This is part two. It's part of the same text. But the difference in the dividing line is that instead of looking forward to the coming of Christ in order to motivate us to walk with Jesus... In verses 4 through 10, we must look backwards. And if we think that sin is no big deal, we must look backwards to why he came in the first place. This is what it says, reading from 1 John 3, 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that when he appeared, in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children... Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In the words... Of Kelly Cote, staff member, um, director of Lambsgate School, in staff meeting on Monday, in her words, yikes. Because at first gloss, it sounds like none of you are saved. Sounds like I'm not saved. Why? Because I still have a propensity toward and for Sin. However, let me remind you, as we look at these verses, John has been and is writing to genuine, spiritually born-again Christians who have been known to be tempted by, struggle with, and sometimes fall into sinful thoughts, attitudes, and choices, and he's not saying that they're not saved. Smack dab in the middle of this text, 1 John 3, 7, little children. He uses this language again and again for genuine believers in 1 John. Little children, let no one deceive you. So again and again, he reaffirms the spiritual status of his recipients, as genuine believers. And the idea here is this, that their relationship with Jesus is not the end of their spiritual struggle against sin. So I need to rewind and cite 1 John 1, 8 and 10. We could do chapter 2, verse 1 as well. But let me just remind you, he is not contradicting this. 1 John 1, 8 and 10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So you can't say, ah, 1 John 3, 4 through 10, I think I hit that. Um, John says you're not perfect, no one is in this lifetime. He goes on in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And the idea here is that we're not never going to be in this life sinlessly perfect. Genuine believers will continue to struggle with sin. But the question is, why the change of tone? Why the, the vast and sweeping generalizations of the children of God and the children of the devil? And it's really quite black and white, and it's, it's incendiary, like, oh my goodness, what is he saying here? Concerning the incompatibility or the impossibility of sin with God's seed. Without retouching the verses I just restated. Why is he so emphatic about practicing sin? And I believe it begins to fall into place when we consider the presence of the voices of the teachings of the apostate antichrist deceivers in Ephesus this is not the first time we know that John is living in Ephesus and we know that these individuals are in Ephesus in 1 John 2, just a little bit of review. Verses 18 through 19. Listen to what John says. Pastor Tyler taught this two Sundays ago. Children, it is the last hour and you've heard that Antichrist is coming. Like Antichrist, capital A, the man of lawlessness in other parts of the New Testament. So now many Antichrists, little a, plural, have come in the first century. There were already Little a, antichrists. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They, the antichrist, went out from us. They were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. And what we discover is that they have an agenda. It's not just enough to say, you know, I tried the church. I tried Christianity. didn't work for me. God bless you. Live and let live. That was not these individuals path forward these deconverted apostate antichrist deceivers were actively trying to undermine the faith of those who had remained as believers and in the church and that is why several times we see this phrase show up Um, 1 John 2 26 I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you so he's in the context of these antichrist apostates that went out for the church. He's saying, they're trying to deceive you. I actually know that they're doing that. And then smack dab in the middle of our text this morning, verse 7 again, little children, let no one deceive you. Now Kenneth Wiest, a Greek scholar and expert, uh, the, the, knowing all of the parts and pieces and grammar and syntax of the Greek language, uh, translates... This verse, this way. Stop allowing anyone to be leading you astray. Meaning it was actively taking place in the churches under the Apostle John's pastoral care. It was happening. And last week we discovered that not only were they attempting to undermine their confidence as children of God... We talked about that last Sunday. Saying your faith isn't good enough. You need to be an enlightened one. You need more knowledge. You need more freedom in Christ. Your conviction is not good enough. But secondly, they were also teaching a kind of lawlessness. We call it antinomianism. Martin Luther was the first one to coin the phrase. No law. And the idea is this, the cool Christians, the enlightened Christians, they don't fuss about scruples or have scruples with sin. Either sin is not even a thing anymore or that's not an important thing. Hey, y'all, we're forgiven. This is the voice of the deceivers and ultimately the voice of the father of lies himself. In every generation, there have been individuals, so-called Christians, that have taught this idea of what I will brand sloppy grace. Uh, it's been called cheap grace. Flippant grace. Abuse of grace if jesus died for us get over it let's enjoy ourselves and live the abundant life so do a little history lesson three infamous antinomians throughout history first could have been around right right in this time in ephesus nicholas of antioch According to two leaders in the early church, Arrhenius and Hippolytus, the Nicolaitans were named after Nicholas, who was one of the original seven deacons in the book of Acts. We can't prove that for sure. This is extra-biblical sourcing. But it could have been that one of these deacons appointed to distribute resources to the Greek widows who were being left out, the Hellenized Jewish widows, that is, actually had begun a heresy, and the heresy was called Nicolaitanism. The Nicolaitan heresy was one of the false teachings that plagued the church in Ephesus. How do we know this? Now, this is biblical. In John's final writing the revelation there is a letter from the lord jesus to the angel of ephesus and in that letter in revelation chapter 2 verse 1 through 6 or 7 we see jesus specifically mention the heresy of the nicolaitans by the way the next church mentions pergamum also has this heresy in the churches as well. The Nicolaitan heresy is compared with the sin and strategy of Balaam, the deviant prophet in the Old Testament who used sexual immorality to lure Jewish young men into idolatry and apostasy and destroy the Jews from the inside out. And according to early church leaders, Nicholas taught a doctrine of compromise. He had no problem with syncretism, which means blending the occult, blending Judaism, blending parts of Christianity, mixing it up into a great big cocktail and imbibing it regularly. This is Nicholas. Secondly, Marcion. He was a second century heretic who denied the physical bodily incarnation of Jesus that he appeared to have a body But not only was it a heresy concerning uh, the person of Jesus, not only was it a Christological heresy, but it was also behavioral. I can't improve on the words of Kevin DeYoung. He said, Marcion was one of the most successful heretics in the early church. For nearly a century after his death, he was the arch heretic opposed to By virtually anyone who was anyone in the ancient church. Here's a list Polycarp. Polycarp called him the firstborn of Satan. How'd you like that title? But not only Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, Clement, Tertullian, Hippolytus, and Origen. Marcion refused to believe that the God of the Old Testament was the same as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Marcion simply could not believe in a God full of wrath and justice, even when it comes to sin and sinfulness and rebellion. So he threw away the Old Testament and took for his Bible a truncated version of Luke's gospel and selectively edited versions of Paul's epistles. And when all the cutting and pasting was finished, Marcion had the Christianity he wanted. A God of goodness and nothing else. A message of inspiring moral uplift. A Bible that does away with the uncomfortable bits about God's wrath and hell. Marcionism was antinomian. Idealistic about human potential and skittish about dogma and rules. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Anyone? Are these heresies showing up? Throughout the ages and centuries, and maybe even today in North America. Here's Johann Agricola, 15th century Protestant reformer, originally a follower of and friend with Martin Luther himself, the one for whom the term antinomianism was designed. He stated, after a falling out with Martin Luther, if you sin, be happy. It should have no consequence antinomianism it's a perversion of the doctrine of grace illegitimate sloppy cheap grace and today it shows up in many forms and not just out there but in here maybe you've heard things like this or said things like this it's just gossip I mean we're just talking about someone it's not really a sin anyway oh get over it lots of people sleep together before they get married It's not like my pornography use actually hurts anyone. I know I have an anger problem. I can't help it. It's just the way I am. Jesus understands it. I'm just, I'm a hot-blooded whatever. People say Irish, Latin American, whatever. I'm just a hot-blooded this or that. Everybody does it sometimes. Don't be so legalistic. It's no big deal. These are all antinomian statements against law or no law. And I need to say that these attitudes are incompatible with God's seed in us. Sinning without negative consequences, habitually, without backlash, without concern is actually impossible for the genuine child of God. And this is like the first part of the bottom line. You can start to fill it in. I'm not going to complete it till the end, but regeneration wrecks participation in and enjoyment of sin. That's the big picture of this text. John is trying to say this like 11 different ways. Regeneration, that's a big religious, churchy, theological word. It's a good word, though. and You need to understand it. Re means again. Generation is uh, the idea of life. And you put them together and you have what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. You must be born again. Natural birth and good works are not going to get you forgiven. Religious exercises and keeping duties that the church sets up is not going to get you to heaven. Or at peace with God today. You must be born again. Spiritual new birth. Something that you receive but God works. From the inside out. Regeneration. When this happens. It literally, literally wreaks havoc on our ability to participate in and enjoy sin with God impunity which means no consequence i like my sin and i'm forgiven and this is this just rocks i'm a child of god and isn't sin nice because it's forgiven antinomian it's impossible now it's important once again to understand he's not contradicting himself christians sometimes struggle with and fall into sin The last clue that we need to understand here for this antinomian heresy that he's so direct about is that John is not talking about an ongoing sin struggle. This is a person that embraces and enjoys. No consequence. It's remorseless. And regeneration wrecks participation regeneration ruins participation regeneration wreaks havoc on participation so even if you struggle it bothers you doesn't it you struggle and it tortures you you cannot any longer sin with impunity no consequence. If you could, you'd you get rid of it, wish it away. Regeneration plants the seed in you. It's in you if you are born again. If you have received the forgiveness of sins. Give you a, an illustration. A friend, Charlie Milbro, actually, I actually had him preach here a couple years ago. So missionary to uh, Thailand, uh, one of the most successful and fruitful missionaries in Thailand, according to church plants and uh, impact of the gospel around Thailand. Charlie Milbro tells the story of his conversion. He was a drug runner in the 1970s off the Florida Keys. And he loved the lifestyle. And one evening, he wandered into a little church revival service. And he says, and I quote, Had I known what God was going to do, to my drug addiction and intoxication, I would have never walked into that church. That evening, he heard the gospel, and he believed, and he was instantly sobered. And it ruined his enjoyment of not only drugs, but the whole lifestyle. Now, he doesn't regret it from this side of the equation, but the guy walking into the building wouldn't have gone there. He wanted what he had. And I don't tell you that story to go, well, that didn't happen to me. It doesn't happen that way for most of us. But I think God lets it happen for some of us, for us to understand what he wants to do with our habits and addictions and sinfulness. He plants a seed in us that fundamentally wreaks havoc in our ability to participate in and enjoy sin. We have another illustration. It's a little bit different. I don't want to get into the the argument, Old Covenant, New Covenant, but King David of Israel was a man after God's own heart. He was a child of God. And guess what? He didn't get it right. He had a major, major midlife train wreck called adultery and murder. And he was able to actually keep it quiet from nine to ten months Push it way down and continue to sleep with her until a prophet came and called him out. He came to repentance and he wrote several psalms, parts and pieces. The two majors that we know were written off that, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. I'm wondering if Psalm 38 has a piece of this story as well. But I want you to hear how he describes when I was keeping this a secret What God was doing in me was all-out torture. He says in Psalm 32, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then Psalm 38 that I'm wondering, "Is is there a piece of this? Psalm 38, he says, My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds... Stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning. And there's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. And the idea here is a picture like, you can sin, you can taste the passing pleasures of sin. But you cannot do it without consequences it turns out to be death it's like taking a big bite of delicious best ever beef and broccoli and then realize your mouth is full of glass and you know what that's like if you are regenerate you know what it's like your sin does not have the joy it once did it brings shame and guilt and then If this is crazy, you start to doubt whether you're saved. Can I just tell you, if it bothers you, you're likely saved. That's the seed of God in you, tormenting you, and the Holy Spirit that is in you is grieved, and you sense his grief as well. And that's a good thing, meaning if you sin and there's no consequences, that's a very bad thing. Heads up, if you love your sin and you like it, and you go, and I want to get really good at it, and I want to spend my life doing it, don't become a Christian. But I'll tell you, there's been tens of thousands and millions and scriptures and prophetic things that mathematically are impossible to say, you're going to be really sorry one day. You sin only for a season, passing pleasures, the backlash is severe in this life. John already said the love of this world is already passing away. It's been tried and found wanting. It's not going to be what you think it is. Solomon said two times in a row in Proverbs, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end therein leads to death. So even for those of you who go, I, 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 I liked him. Party like a rock star, whatever that means for you. I like my sinfulness. It's getting me where I want to go. Warning. Broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many are they that are on that path. Regeneration wrecks participation. Well, we've looked at David's big sins, and we've talked about sins. What about in those big pieces of glass, if you will? What about the little tiny pieces that we might even be get a, able to get think we can get away with get away with taking in ourselves or passing on to someone else what about those little sins and I think John his point is don't take that attitude sin is bad in every form imaginable don't play that game speak truth to the in, in your inner self about what this really is and and he has all these ways in this text to explain this. And I want to walk you through three of them, okay? These are your fill-in-the-blanks, and, and we'll be out of here. First off, sin is immoral. That means it, it, uh, it has to do with right and wrong. And, and it's actually wrong. Absolutely wrong. And he says it this way because it's serious and it's satanic. It's immoral. This is where he starts everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness sin is lawlessness there's a way that god designed the universe the very fabric of the universe is designed by a good god and not just the physical properties of the universe but the moral properties of the universe and they are good and they are laws and every time god gives a law It is to provide for you and to protect you. It's to bring you life and flourishing. And John says, and sin is against that. Big, little sins of commission, doing that which you should not do. Sins of omission, not doing what you should do. All of it, lawless. And as lawless, it is both serious and satanic. He says here, 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. That's pretty serious. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And certainly, this could signal a lack of regeneration, right? Like God's seed is not in this person, But at the same time, I want you to understand this. Every time I take the bait, every time I rationalize, I actually participate in the works of the enemy of God. You go, huh, how's that work? No, it's just an oopsie, a slip up, a temptation. Think about how good intended Peter When Jesus was describing his arrest and crucifixion, and Peter said to him, I will never let that happen to you. Far be it from you, Lord. You're the Messiah. And what did Jesus say to him? Get thee behind me, Satan. What? I just want to save your life. You're my friend. I love you. I believe you're Messiah. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God. That even a good-natured falling over into the enemy's camp. It's how serious and wicked. Falling out of line with God's nature and his law is. Serious and satanic. This is how... Those who hate God live. Do not be like them. That's number one. Number two, sin is illogical in the life of a believer. It's illogical. It doesn't make sense. Don't you know this is why Jesus appeared? It says here, he came to remove and destroy sin. Sin is illogical. Jesus came to remove and destroy it. Verse 5, 1 John 3, 5, and verse 8. You know that he appeared In order to take away sins, not just to forgive it and to remove the guilt and penalty, to actually take it away. This is what John the Baptist said when he saw his cousin, Jesus of Nazareth, coming out. This is found in in John chapter 1, verse 29. He sees his cousin that he's known all his life likely, coming out to be baptized. And the Holy Spirit gives him eyes to see in that moment. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He didn't say, who comes to forgive the sins of the world. Who comes to remove them. And that's what Jesus came for. A full-blown removal of our sins. And then in verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. All the works of the devil. Anything and everything that, that Satan has worked throughout the history of This story called history, Jesus has taken care of and is redeeming and making new once again. That is why he came. So his argument for the necessity of holy living in this text is not drawn from the return, but why Jesus came in the first place. And when we look at why he came, it is illogical to participate in any kind of sin. John Stott says it this way, to continue in sin is thus shown to be completely opposed to the whole purpose of Christ's first appearing. Sin is what we get saved from, not just the consequences and penalty, but also from the power over our lives. You cannot at one time say, I want to be forgiven of the penalty, but I really want to keep the addiction. That's illogical. Jesus came to wipe it all out. And so, when we have God's seed and we're following Him and we're walking with Him, abiding in Him, we walk away from that stuff. The Apostle Paul said this in Romans 6 What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? by no means how can we who died to sin still live in it that is illogical jesus john and paul baptism is a wonderful picture of this it's a declaration a threefold declaration one there's a picture of the washing away of our sins both the guilt and addiction too the addiction part is dying with christ My old nature, my sinful desires is being crucified with Christ and placed in the grave under the water and then the resurrection. I have a new nature and a new life. Isn't baptism awesome? Don't you want to get baptized again? I kind of do. You only have to do it once as a believer. However, it's a beautiful declaration that I'm done with that. Let's Roll into the new life and walk with Christ. Here's the third sin is incompatible, incompatible with the new nature. Sin is incompatible, it is the antithesis of life. I love that word, antithesis. I like to say it antithesis, antithetical, the opposite of. A working against and going in the other direction from. It is the antithesis of life, capital L, eternal life. Life, the seed of God within us. And it is incompatible with that seed. Verses 6 and 7 and 9 through 10. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. He goes on to say, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And In that context, it's sinning with impunity. It doesn't bother you. You like it. You want some more of it. It's just a habit of heart in life. It's no big deal. You're an antinomian. You have not seen him or heard him. It says here, uh, little children, let no one deceive you because there were deceivers. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And then verse 10, 9 through 10, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. It's a good translation in the ESV. For God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep sinning. You can't do it anymore with the same joy and pleasure and, and reckless abandonment because he's been born of God. By this is it is evident who are the children of God, who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, I want to just give you a heads-up warning. This is not license to be the judge. In certain Christian circles, it's called being a fruit inspector. I've been in those churches. Like, we're looking for the fruit. There's no way that guy could be saved. That is not where John is parking this. Hey, I hope you all become judgmental and try to figure out who's really born again. He is just stating a metaphysical reality that those who are born of God cannot go on sinning without consequences. New life in Christ changes us. Paul would say if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold the new has come. It is immoral, it is illogical, it is incompatible with new life in Christ. No, I did not serve the beef and broccoli. Didn't do it. Here's how crazy I am, though. I tested it. So did my wife. First bite, both of us glass. Yeah. But just a little. What would John the Apostle say about that? Throw it away. What are you doing? Start over. I know, mean, it was like a $5 London Royal. Big deal. It's the price of goodness. It's the price of love and loving my brothers and sisters that I'm serving this meal to. It's immoral, illogical, and incompatible. Here's the completion of the bottom line. Regeneration wreaks participation in and enjoyment of sin. So come as you are. The gospel is for sinners. It's for sinful people that like sin. Like Charlie Milbro, like Jim Roden. Come! as you are. Don't try to fix yourself before coming to faith in Jesus. Come just as you are. But Christian, don't live like you were any longer. Enough time on sin. Let's live. In God, what he's working in us, what he expects of us is not perfection, but wholeheartedness. What about when you mess up? Well, we've heard it before. We'll hear it again. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things so you will not sin. However, if anyone does sin, third class conditional, meaning likely to occur, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You got something that you're holding on to today? Would you bring it to Jesus? Confess it and repent, and his blood cleanses and purifies and forgives. And can we make sure that we're not going light, especially on our own sin? Own it. Apologize for it repent ask God and get people praying for you I want to be changed I want to be prepared for for when he comes I want to live out the new life that he came and purchased with his blood let's pray Lord we do we want to prepare um we want to be confident at your return we want to also be logical and moral and uh obedient so would you help us Lord We don't want to turn into judgmental fruit inspectors. Uh, We just want to be godly. We want to abide in you. May it be so. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.